The Australian Open is underway and it has become the symbol of the changing face of tennis. Plus, the Detroit Lions are suddenly the hottest ticket in the NFL. It's Wednesday, January 17th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter and this is Front Office Sports Today. The past weekend of NFL playoff games was very satisfying for people who like to watch the Dallas Cowboys lose, which is a group that includes me, but probably does not include the league's accounting department. With the exit of the Cowboys, Philadelphia Eagles, and Pittsburgh Steelers, the league lost the first, third, and fourth ranked teams when it comes to combined social media following. The Cowboys were also the NFL's top team when it comes to regular season attendance, which they are every year by a large margin, and the Eagles were the second biggest road draw. That said, we still have some beloved teams and great storylines in the final three rounds, none better than the Detroit Lions, who just won their first playoff game in 32 years. While the get-in price for the other division round playoff games is currently around $200, according to TickPick, you currently can't find anything below $700 for Sunday's Lions-Bucks game on the secondary market. The median age of Detroit is around 35 years. Half the city had never seen a Lions playoff win before Sunday, and now they are hungry for more. As more NFL teams are eliminated from the playoffs, the most active coaching carousel in recent memory could have yet more open spots. In Philadelphia, a year after the Eagles went to the Super Bowl, there are rumblings that head coach Nick Sirianni is on the hot seat, and Mike Tomlin, who has been the Steelers' head coach since 2007, abruptly walked out of a press conference as he was being asked a question about his contract status. Tomlin's deal runs through next season. Meanwhile, Bill Belichick might not be a free agent for long. He has already interviewed with the Atlanta Falcons. Mallory Swanson, striker for the U.S. women's national soccer team, signed the largest contract in the history of the National Women's Soccer League. Her deal with the Chicago Red Stars is worth $2 million over five years, which tops the NWSL's previous high, which was held by Maria Sanchez, was a $1.5 million deal with the Houston Dash. In men's soccer, the big money is all in Europe. Erling Holland's salary alone is larger than all but one MLS payroll. But on the women's side, it's a different story. Most of the world's highest paid players play in the NWSL. There's still ample competition from European leagues, but the NWSL's four-year, $240 million media rights package that it signed in November will allow payrolls to rise and gives the league more pull to bring the top players in the world to the U.S. And lastly, the LA Clippers are preparing to open the $2 billion Intuit Dome later this year, and there is one section of the arena that will be designated for Clippers fans only. In a 51-row section known as The Wall, there will be special rules, including that fans there cannot cheer for the opposing team or wear the gear of the opposing team. Tickets for The Wall can only be resold on the Clippers marketplace. Season tickets for the section range from $5,000 to $25,000 to be another brick in the wall. Up next, I spoke to John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated on everything going on in the world of tennis. The Australian Open has turned into the anti-Wimbledon, shaking off the more buttoned-up atmosphere that you see at other Grand Slams for something louder and more boisterous. Meanwhile, the tennis world is looking at two major and potentially conflicting changes, namely a possible merger of the men's and women's tours and new investment from Saudi Arabia. Wertheim provides a lot of great insight into all of that. He was traveling while he spoke, so you'll hear a GPS voice in the background a couple of times and occasional other noises, but most Mostly, you'll hear his verbal slams and drop shots on the world of tennis, and that conversation is coming up next. All right, I'm joined now by John Wertheim, senior writer at Sports Illustrated. Welcome, John. Thanks. Thanks, Owen. 
Yeah, great to have you on. So uh, the Australian Open has kicked off. This is the first in 25 years without Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal, but we are seeing some record crowds. So w- what's kind of driving this momentum for this tournament, even without those legends? In, in a short amount of time, this is the, the fourth of the tennis majors. It's the first on the calendar, and it was always sort of really a, a level or two below the other three to the you know to the extent that players didn't even bother to play in past eras, and now there's been a lot of investment. It's a good time. It's kind of become this international destination, and it's, um, you know, I, I think some of this is about investment. It's a good time. They've really marketed themselves as sort of the good time Charlie major. This is not your stodgy tennis event with all whites and Wimbledon decorum. There are two-story bars. There's a beer garden. There's live music. Sometimes this is, you know, to the great benefit and virtue of the energy. Sometimes it's to the detriment of players that are demanding quiet. But it's kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like a big Australian party with a tennis tournament tacked on. And that um, is not the feel of the other three majors. Yeah, it really isn't. I mean, Wimbledon, I think, has you know more pomp and circumstance than almost any other sport event, tennis or otherwise. And it is sort of amusing to think about, you know, players, when you think about any other sport, a player complaining about noise from the fans, and it's like, well, that's kind of what the fans are for in most other spots. Um, do you think this is going to produce an, some like real tension that is going to cause issues with players in a substantial way, or, or is this just kind of grumbling that the tournament's largely going to ignore? I think this is grumbling. You know, I think in, in the moment, the players get frustrated and they look for a scapegoat. But I, I think these players actually have a really, I, I think they're very keen to the fact that, um, you know, t- tennis isn't necessarily the sexiest sport. They see their colleagues in other sports that have more popularity and higher prize money and winnings. I think there's a recognition. This is this is a fairly recent development. I think there's a real recognition by the players that we've got to jazz things up and do a little differently. There's there's a Netflix show that just came out that the players, most of them anyway, are pretty good about appearing in and participating in. I think there's a recognition that, you know, we, we've got to kind of, uh, you know, we, we, we're not going to make it if this is grandpa and in watching bud collins on nbc we, we've got to sort of embrace the times and if that means guys drinking beer and moving around when i'm trying to serve i i think there's an acknowledgement that's got to be part of the equation now and do you think the australian open was more in a position to you know have a two-story bar whereas you know wimbledon might be the last tournament to do that um yeah is the australian open more the one that's more willing to experiment because it's, you know, hasn't been as much of a draw and, you know, it's in a funny time zone for, for most of us. So yeah, were, were they kind of the one that was most primed for this? Yeah. If, if one tournament was going to have a live band and it's also, fun, I mean, it's like Tame Impala, like these are not, these are, these are like real bands and real concerts. And, uh, I, I think they have license to do it. And it's sort of in keeping with, uh, everything we know and love about Australia, but it's very sort of on brand for the country. But yeah, they're not going to out tradition Wimbledon. And I think they went the opposite direction. And it, you know, honestly, I think the players like it. I think fans like it. It's so different from these other majors and they're guys dressed as tennis balls chasing each other around the grounds. I mean, they've really kind of leaned into uh, to the whole sort of experience. There, there are people that go there that don't even watch tennis. They just go to hang out. Um, that does not happen at the other three majors. 
Zooming out to the tennis world more broadly, um, we're at an interesting moment with the sport. Uh, let's first jump in on the issue of, sort of the men's and women's tours. They operate separately, but obviously, you know, but they come together for, for the majors. Uh, so it's sort of this, you know, this, this interesting partnership. Do you think at some point we're going to see a single organization with, you know, that, that covers all the professionals in, in both genders? I do. The caveat is, what is this going to look like? Is this going to be a merger? Is this going to be an acquisition? Is this going to be in the, the, I, I mean, I think you're right. And men and women play tennis together, right? The, the men play today at the Australian Open and the women will play the next match, right? It's not like the WNBA or the LPGA. I mean, this is really a joint project. The issue is that the men's tour separately is worth a lot more money and they have more in sponsorships and media revenue. And so the men have traditionally been reluctant to merge on the grounds that, Hey, as a standalone, and we're talking like three and four X, this isn't like uh, you know, a 55, 45 thing. Um, I think so a lot of the resistance in men's tennis is, Hey, listen, on the market, we are worth three to four times what the women are. Why would we want to join forces as a 50, 50 split? So I think it makes a lot of sense for the tours to combine um, you know, no, nobody says, hey, I love Serena Williams, but who's that Swiss tennis player? Who, who's the guy from Spain? Like if you're a tennis fan, 99 times out of 100, you, you follow both tours. Maybe not equally, but it really is a joint project. So I think it's, it's a matter of time, but the devil's in the details because there's a lot of resistance in men's tennis for a flat merger, which means equal prize money and equal revenues. When, when the men and women play separately, the men's properties are worth so much more. Yeah. And how do you see that being resolved one way or another? I mean, do the, do the men eventually just have to say, okay, we're, we're doing it, even though it, maybe it's going to cost us money? Or is there some deal to be made there that reflects that weight of, you know, popular, popularity and sponsorship money and, you know, prize money outside of the Grand Slams? I think there's got to be a creative solution here. I mean, right. Businesses do this all the time. And two Law firms merge, and it doesn't mean they both bill the same number of hours or have the same number of revenue. And there are all sorts of creative ways to structure a deal so both parties uh, feel like they're being made whole. I also think that, just as a rule of thumb, I, I think tennis is better off for this. I mean, I think it's it, there, there's an element of sort of one plus one is three, and the pie is going to grow for everyone. And if the men have to sacrifice a, a, a couple of percentage points here and there. I think it ultimately benefits anyone much more if this is all streamlined. But, you know, I mean, t- tennis does not do change particularly well or gracefully or willingly, but businesses merging and acquiring each other and coming together is, is not a new phenomenon. There's There's got to be a way for, you know, m- mature, sensible people to, uh, to figure this out. And is there momentum toward that right now, or is it just kind of the the logic points toward this eventually, but the movement isn't really happening? There, there's a lot of momentum. Some of this is just common sense. Some of this is coming from inside. The women's tour is not on particularly firm financial footing. We have this threat of, uh, you know, it's, it's either a threat or great promise or both of, of Saudi Arabia suddenly acting as a disruptor and convulsing the model. And again, I think tennis looks around and they see things like the deal that you know the NCAA just signed, or you know that uh, women's sports have signed coming out of last year's Final Four, or they see the money being bandied about with 
the, the PGA live. And I think there's a sense in tennis of, wait a second, we've got this global product. People love to gamble on it, which is another wrinkle in all this. It's a very popular betting sport. We've got men. We've got women. We have this really desirable demographic. It's a lot of rich people that love tennis. We're all over the world. We've got some assets here. Why aren't we making PGA money? Why aren't we getting the kind of media rights that, you know, LSU women's hoops is? Um, I think we're at this point where the players and the stakeholders that for a long time had just kind of been in don't rock the boat mode are sort of like, wait a second, other sports are eating lunch. So I, I think, you know, I think you've got this forces both within tennis and also outside, this internal and external. And I, I feel like we're at a point where, you know, it, it's been years and years. This is always discussed. And I, I just feel like we're, we're at a point where something's going to happen here pretty soon because I've never seen it so much a part of the conversation. I mean, you know, 40 years ago, Billie Jean King was saying, hey, we should merge the men and the women. This is not a new discussion, but I do think the variables and all the sort of externalities now make it so I, I think we're going to see some movement here pretty soon. Yeah, and Saudi Arabia is where I wanted to go with this next. Um, it feels to me like tennis could be the next big target for Saudi Arabia. Obviously, we're already seeing some signs of that. They just signed Rafael Nadal to be the ambassador or an ambassador of the Saudi Tennis Federation. Um, this feels like they could be following the playbook that they did with soccer, where they got, you know, Messi and David Beckham to be ambassadors. And then, you know, a bunch of uh, players followed to, to join their league. Obviously, with golf, we have Live Golf, where they got Phil Mickelson for, you know, the low, low price of $200 million. And that opened the door to um, many other golfers to say, well, if Mickelson's in, then, then why not me? Why shouldn't I take those hundreds of millions myself? Um, I feel like, you know, if they wanted to throw that kind of money at tennis, they could be poaching players if they go that route uh, for less than they did in golf. Um, and if they want to invest, then it's going to be hard to say no to that money. So, yeah, what's you, can you look into the crystal ball and tell me what's going to happen here? Yeah, I mean, I don't even think you need a crystal ball because this is, uh, you know, we're, we're in we're very much in present tense and not in future tense. This is happening. I, I think you're right that you sort of hit on something interesting, which is live was not ideal for anyone. Phil Mickelson's, you know, accountant notwithstanding. Right. This was not good PR. This was not graceful. This ended up in litigation. I think that tennis wants to avoid a situation like that where you have this complete rival tour. And Saudi Arabia just buys up the top players and says, hey, you know, if you can't beat them, join them. I, I don't think tennis wants that. I don't think Saudi Arabia wants that. So the question is, there's no question that Saudi Arabia has targeted tennis as a next sort of place to make its sports foray. This news you referenced with Nadal was uh, curious, but not unexpected. Um, there have been events. There have been an event. There's an exhibition in Saudi Arabia where they sort of famously overpay and they don't really draw crowds, and they don't really have much in the way of promotion or buzz, but they pay millions of dollars to the players. There was an ATP event that went out um, in November with, I thought, surprisingly little fanfare, given uh, sort of the domino here. But I think there's, there's no question that uh, Saudi Arabia is part of, you know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, un uncharitably, we'll call it sports washing, charitably, we'll talk about uh, economic diversification and... Uh, marketing there's no question that um this this private investment fund this this saudi sovereign wealth fund has targeted tennis and the question that you raise which is a good which is a good one is sort of what is this actually going to look like are you going to put an event in saudi arabia well presumably they want that this isn't just 
path of investment, they would like Rafa Nadal to actually play matches in Saudi Arabia. When would that occur? The tennis calendar is pretty jammed. Do they get really ambitious and try to make a fifth major and say, hey, listen, you know, we're going to double Wimbledon's prize money. They certainly have the resources to do that. Um, I, I do think this breakaway tour, which is really what tennis was very fearful of, I don't think that's going to happen, not least because I think there's a recognition in Saudi Arabia that Liv was not necessarily uh, a, a PR success. But tennis is going to have to reckon with this. There are deals to be made. I think I think it's one of these things where nobody in tennis wants to be left out, right? Everybody wants to avail themselves to these uh, – you know, billions in, in Saudi money that could be earmarked for tennis, but nobody wants to give up their real estate either, right? So nobody wants their date on the calendar to change. Maybe Saudi Arabia. I, th- I think what's more likely than buying off individual players, I mean, the, the doll thing was interesting news, but I'm not sure sort of what it is more than a press release. I mean, he's, he's almost 38 years old. He may never play again. He'll open an academy in Saudi Arabia. He has a restaurant there already with, with Ronaldo. I'm not sure what that is apart from just kind of, hey, look, if it's good enough for Rafa, it should be good enough for you, which, of course, is an element of sports watching and normalization. Um, so I, I don't think Saudi Arabia is going to buy off individual players. I think what's more likely is they will figure out a way to buy the Miami Open or buy the Madrid tournament and basically buy an event so the players actually go to Riyadh or go to Jeddah and, and play matches. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to to see what happens there because Saudi Arabia, at least if we're looking at soccer and golf, they want to, and, and F1, I'll throw that in there, and the World Cup, uh, they want to host. They want it to be in Saudi Arabia, about Saudi Arabia, um, so and not just, not just an investor. Uh, last thing I'm going to ask you is... Our, our last, the last two things we hit on. I wonder if they're going to smash into each other because we've seen, um, you know, women, female athletes be, you know, resistant uh, more so than men to doing business with Saudi Arabia. We've seen that in in soccer, among others. Um, I'm wondering if we have a merged men's and women's tour in tennis. Is that going to produce tension? I mean, obviously we're it's conjecture at this point, but um, if there's a merger there and then we're doing business with Saudi Arabia. Is that going to cause problems and, you know, is tennis going to be able to have it all? It's a great question. Um, and I think that's, you know, the, the women were supposed to have held their big year end event in Riyadh last year. And there was some friction and there was some blowback. What was interesting to me is that a lot of the friction came from Martina Navratilova and Chris Evert, who are lovely people and towering champions and should be greatly respected. They're also in their 60s. The current players are not particularly activist. Um, they, you know, and this is not a, a value judgment one way or the other, but they're, they're rational actors. And none of them seem particularly upset about going to country like Saudi Arabia with its human rights record, with its record in women's rights. If, if the checks were getting cut, the resistance to go there uh, did not come from the, the active players. So... It'll be really interesting to see how this all plays out because I think if you're Saudi Arabia, you actually have to be really pleased by how little resistance there is from the stars. Um, And we'll see if the women, you know, they're going to have to make a decision here pretty soon about where to hold their final event. I think Saudi Arabia will probably get it. But, you know, as as you say, you sort of look at the, the fact pattern and you look at Saudi Arabia's rights record. This is a country where 
you know, women couldn't drive five years ago and only recently had freedom of, of movement. Um, you know, there, there are wife tracker apps that you can download to keep, I mean, this is not a particularly progressive country. I mean, you know, in fairness, it does seem to be trending toward progressive. It does seem to be going in the right direction, but you know, there, there are real issues. This is a country that criminalizes homosexuality. There are gay players uh, in the top ranks of women's tennis. How will that play out? But it's been interesting to me that as this has kind of been brewing, there's a lot of chatter. There's a lot of rumor. I mean, I get texts about this every day. But, you know, M- Martina Navratilova, as wonderful as she is, um, isn't one of the players that's going to be playing in the main draw. And I think as long as the players themselves have been pretty silent, and they have, that probably, uh, to me, indicates women's tennis will in some form, end up in Saudi Arabia sooner rather than later. All right. Fascinating stuff. John Wertheim, thanks so much for joining us on the show. You got it. That's it for today. Drop us a rating or review wherever you like to listen or share an episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow. Yeah.